The reading of God's Word comes from Proverbs chapter 13. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn there. Proverbs chapter 13. We'll read verses 21 through 25. Lend your attention. This is the reading of God's word. Disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. The fallow ground of the poor would yield much fruit, but it is swept away through injustice. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffered want, suffers want. Thus far the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer as we ask his blessing upon his word read and preached. Now, Father, we bless your name for the inheritance that you have left us. taking us as those who have inherited futility from our forefathers, our ancestors, our Lord, and placing us in your household where we have been made heirs of eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this to the wonderful display of your goodness, your love, your mercy, your grace. And we thank you, Father, that you have called us sons, we know, Father, sometimes we recoil under your disciplining and chastising hand, but certainly we, as your people, would desire to be formed and fashioned as you a purpose to form and fashion us, O Lord, for you are the fount of all excellencies. And so as you Discipline us, Lord, as you disciple us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen our hearts to receive of your word. Build us up, O Lord, in our faith, our hope, and our love, as only you can, for these are spiritual blessings, Lord. But your word assures us that you have granted us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so give us, Father, now even a greater taste of that inheritance which is ours in Christ and sealed unto us by the Holy Spirit. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can turn in the Trinity Psalter hymnal to page 973 where you can find the shorter catechism questions as we continue through the Ten Commandments at this point in the Westminster Shorter. I believe the questions are also in the white insert, which you can find in the bulletin. I'll read the brief verse. This is God's word. You shall not commit adultery. And thus ends God's word. And then we'll take up question 71 and 72 once more. What is required in the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment requireth the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity 
in heart, speech, and behavior. What is forbidden in the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment forbiddeth all unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. This is our fifth week in the seventh commandment, and uh, we spent the first week examining God's zeal to preserve the family. Uh, His design of marriage is particularly safeguarded in the seventh commandment. Uh, We looked next at the good gift of uh, sex within marriage that God has given us, that good gift of physical pleasure and fruitfulness, which God's word uh, commends to us to be received and enjoyed as from his hand. And we turned then and looked at uh, the plain um, nature of this commandment forbidding, not just adultery proper, but all forms of sexual immorality. Um, I said the fifth, I think we're in the fourth. Are we in the fourth or the fifth week? It doesn't matter. Um, But we saw particularly that the call to cultivate chastity, the call to pursue purity, the call to flee sexual immorality uh, is uh, a good that is set before the church uh, in that the life of purity um, reflects the excellencies of our king and the life of purity is a very true and real manifestation of love towards one another. And we uh, thus frame this call to flee sexual normality, to, to, to cultivate chastity within those two coordinates of truly reflecting Christ and truly loving one another. The Lord is the one who cleanses us. Now, he's the only one who can cleanse us, as we heard this morning. He's the only one who can wash us at the level of the fountain of the heart. Paul states this in a number of different ways in 1 Corinthians 6. We read one of those passages this morning. He says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And then he goes on to say in that same chapter, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's a remarkable statement, is it not? That you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And he seems to mean that in the most literal sense because he draws from that an ethical implication concerning your physical body. He's not speaking metaphorically there. He's speaking strictly. That's the only thing that seems to make sense of such a strict ethical implication being drawn. So then be careful, honor God with your body. So we have here both the basis and the empowerment of our pursuit of chastity. That holiness of body and soul with respect to our sexual life. Christ has shed his blood to cleanse us. Christ has set us apart for God's special use. The Holy Spirit now indwells us, 
sealing that sacred space and animating that sacred space, namely your body. That's a remarkable consideration. It's a beautiful consideration. The intimacy that we have with God is the basis and empowerment for our life of purity. That's what he's saying there. Do you hear that? The intimacy that we have with God is the basis for and empowerment of our lives of purity. Scripture is very plain about this line of exhortation. And it doesn't just leave us at that high, albeit lovely, conceptual level. It brings us down into very particular courses of action, very particular routes that it encourages us on. And so we're going to look at three of them tonight. The first is we guard what we look at and how we look at things. We guard what we look at and how we look at things. You can go to any number of places for this. We'll look at Matthew 5, the text that's cited in the Westminster Larger Catechism. It draws this point out particularly. The Lord teaches, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Elsewhere in Psalm 119, we read similarly where the psalmist is praying and he says, turn my eyes from worthless things, give me life according to your words. So again, we're profiling the life of sight here. That avenue of sense perception that's perhaps most striking, is it not? The visual field. And I think there's benefit to be had at that most basic and literal level of passages such as these. Namely, be careful what you look at. How do you cultivate chastity? How do you cultivate purity? Partly, it's by looking with discernment or in discernment, not exposing yourself to everything that, that's out there. We're going to go on to see that these passages are teaching more than just curating our field of vision, but we ought not to be naive when it comes to the power of images, beloved. When it comes to the power of what our eyes are exposed to, we ought not to be naive into thinking that it doesn't matter what crosses our field of vision. Paul writes in Romans 6.13, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. He's asking us to envision the various members of the body there and how each of them can just as easily be made a tool for sin or an instrument for righteousness. That's striking, isn't it? He's speaking about the life of Christian sanctification. What is he saying? He's saying that just as formerly as sin dominated us and each one of our members were contorted and perverted to become instruments of unrighteousness, now that you've been brought from death into life, present your bodies as instruments unto God for the use of righteousness. 
Thus, it seems that at least at some level, it's worth meditating on how all of the various members can actually be instruments for righteousness. It's a striking picture, isn't it? He says that the difference between the criminal's knife and the surgeon's scalpel is found in the hand that wields it. Paul says you don't belong to the criminal anymore. Don't present your bodies to sin. You belong to the living and true God, the God of life. Present your bodies unto him. Let your members become instruments of life. Certainly that includes the eyes, does it not? We do well to set before us images in our daily lives that are good and true and beautiful and to turn away from that which is crass, that which is foul, that which is impure. We're not called to be naive when it comes to things like movies or television shows or commercials and the power that they have to direct our minds this way or that way. I trust you're not so naive. Perhaps you're not, but perhaps it hasn't made its way into that level of a careful consideration of what's worth looking at and what's just not worth looking at. Now, certainly we can become too rigid and judgmental in these areas, imposing standards on others that we don't even live up to ourselves. That is always a danger for our hypocritical and pharisaical hearts. But that danger does not give us the license to naivete. That danger doesn't unburden us from the call of Scripture that says, live as wise ones in this world, beloved. The things we gaze upon have an effect on us. Sadly, oftentimes it doesn't take more than just a mere suggestion from an image to start that dreadful formative process of sin in the heart. I trust you've known this. I trust you know your own heart enough by now to know that is the case. It's not puritanical to take account of that tendency of the heart and to live in the light of that reality. But the passage is certainly saying more than simply close your eyes whenever you see an attractive person. It's saying more than that. I trust you can hear that. Matthew highlights not what we see in the strictest sense, but rather how we look. You hear that? Matthew indicts the lustful intent. He rips open that secret register of intention that's oftentimes only known to the gazer and to the Lord. Whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You can actually discern a similar layer in the passage from Psalm 119. Turn my eyes from worthless things. Again, that's the level of desire, those hidden motions of the heart. The psalmist is praying at that level. The request is to turn my eyes from worthless things, namely directly align my desires with yours. It's far more than just a prayer to curate the visual field. It's a prayer 
to address that hidden level of the heart that I might be taught to look at things the way that you look at things. To desire the things that you desire. To turn from the things that are displeasing unto you. And so you know here, as we're going to see in a number of these points, as it always is in Scripture, it's never just a bare prohibition. It's also a positive outlet. It's not simply don't present your members unto sin, a bare negative. It's present yourselves to God. Don't just close my eyes permanently. Teach me to see rightly, the psalmist prays. That's powerful, isn't it? Well, that we can pray that is remarkably liberating. I mean, just think of the acknowledgement that's implicit in that. I don't desire rightly. I don't see rightly. Even as one who longs to do your word, there's something fundamentally still unsound about me. Address that level until all things are healthy. That's a constant prayer. Beloved, I trust you can hear it. The fact that it's given unto us in Scripture to be taken up not just once for our entire, but for our entire pilgrim journey is instructive. Turn my eyes from worthless things. Give me life according to your word. Create in me a new way of seeing. It's aligned with the way that you see. Well, how does God see? If God looks at men in this church as beloved sons, that ought to shape how we look at them. If God looks at women in this church as beloved daughters, that ought to shape how we look at one another. If God looks at those who are lost as those who still truly bear his image and thus as worthy of dignity and honor and indeed recipients of good that he does them, that ought to shape how we look at our unbelieving neighbor. Ought it not? That certainly seems to be what Paul tells Timothy. Treat older men as fathers, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. It's a powerful image, that familial love. That's how God sees us, beloved, as his household. The exhortation there from Timothy is nothing more than what we've been saying. Namely, teach me to see them as you see them. They are your household in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me see them as that. Keep me from debasing them to become objects to move about at my pleasure. Help me to see them as you see them. Mark that it doesn't come easy to us. There's instructions in this regard, constant instructions in this regard. There's prayers with reference to this, all of which tells us that this is no easy switch to flip, beloved but an area to go to war in, equipped with the truth, equipped with the promises, and assured that in the end, 
the Lord does get the victory. Can we start with this in prayer at least? Teach me, Lord, to see aright. Direct my heart's desires aright. Away from the cruel and beastly devouring of others for my sinful purposes and towards a lovely and Christ-like encouraging of my family for your holy life-giving purposes. Now that's ennobling, isn't it? Beloved, we can mourn our dark hearts. We can also rejoice that we no longer belong to death in a formal sense. That's the basis for Paul's ethic in Romans 6. He says, you don't belong to death anymore. You don't belong to sin anymore. Now get to work presenting yourself to God as instruments for righteousness. And marvel as he uses you in that way. We can extend this into two further areas. I'll be briefer. Namely, modest presentation and chaste speech. So we present ourselves in modesty as an extension of the seventh commandment. I say it this way on purpose. I think it's wise to extend a meditation on modesty beyond a bare examination of how we dress. I think that's how Scripture addresses the topic. So 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 and 9. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. It's a striking passage. I don't know, maybe you get a glimpse into the male heart and the female heart. I'm always tempted to see scripture actually doing that. I I don't think that's a hard and fast line. I think we both struggle with similar sins, but I do think that some are more prevalent in men and some are more prevalent in women. I think scripture talks that way. And that seems to be what's going on here. Men are prone to fight. (laughs) That's what he says, right? He says, look, put down your fighting hands and lift up your praying hands. <laughs> Stop boxing each other and start praying for each other. That seems to be, I mean, it seems to be a male thing. But then he talks about women here as well. And he says, Stop your ostentatiousness. Mm-hmm. So again, that's not a strict vision. Women fight, and men are ostentatious. But there's something here that Paul is highlighting. It is noteworthy here that when we talk about modesty and dress, usually we talk about it in terms of sensuality, physicality. And notice here that it's just as much a matter of status and wealth as it is of sensuality. And I think those are closer related than we might think at first glance. But that's what he talks about. Braided hair, gold, pearls, costly attire. Those are symbols of wealth. Those are symbols of status. They're physical manifestations of power. The hierarchy of this world, the valuable things of this world are being played out on the body. 
Now, certainly, that's not unique to women. Men flash wealth and status all the time to attract women. That's like, if you have it, that's what you're going to do. And this is a little bit strange to us, too, uh, partly because we don't live in as strongly a class-structured society. You'd have to go to a more strict class structure in society to kind of really see this, I think. You think of like pride and prejudice. Like look at the difference between the Bennets and Lady Catherine. Like there's a pretty big difference there, isn't there? So that's more what's going on here. But Lady Catherine is flaunting it and, and sort of using it to display the value and thus the worthlessness, the relative worthlessness of the Bennets, which is essentially what happens in the novel, isn't it? She gets a long speech. But modesty goes beyond just matters of sensuality and physicality. It calls us to examine how are we presenting ourselves broadly? Are we marshalling our gifts in an attempt to draw others into the orbit of the worship of me, right? Now, the strict application of this in the light of the seventh commandment is physical attraction. Am I drawing a member of the opposite sex to myself by marshalling physical graces, social graces, intellect, charm, wealth, status, accomplishments, possessions, whatever it is. Modesty calls us to ask how we are stewarding over those things. Is it in an ostentatious and flagrantly attractive matter to bring worshipers to me or as Paul indicates here, is it quiet and sort of behind the scenes leading to service of others? That's what he says. I mean, both iterations. Men, put down your fighting hands and devote yourself to prayer. Like the same hands with which I could pin Lucas in probably five to ten seconds, I would think ought to be lifted up praying for Lucas that he gets stronger. <laughs> you get the idea. Mm. For women, the marshalling of that which would establish them as valuable ought to be put aside. And what does Paul say to devote yourselves to? Good works. Both of those are true and earnest and pure expressions of what? Love for one another. And thus, once more, we're met with the richness of Scripture that doesn't just say, hey, stop doing that. It says you were made for something better. All of those energies and efforts that are channeled in these dark directions, the Lord redeems who you are, your instruments, and he employs them in this holy, pure, earnest, other-oriented way. The death of the self involves the resurrection and ascension and enthronement of Christ. And the enthronement of Christ involves the devotion of myself unto Christ and his members, beloved. Seeking his glory in their good. 
yeah, that has fingers in how we dress and present ourselves. As basic as that. Again, objects to be brought into the orbit of self. But brothers and sisters in Christ, to be served in true love, in earnest prayer. Again, ennobling, is it not? Beautiful? Hunger after righteousness. This last bit is one more member, and it's the guarding of the tongue, and it'll be the briefest. Paul writes, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Again, you can mark the basis for such exhortations. To your saints, he says, you're not like the world. You've been called out of the world onto holiness and blamelessness. This is Christ's purpose for you. This is why he's bathing you in his word week in and week out. This is why he died for you, beloved. Not for you to remain in the darkness of this filth, but to commune with him in the light of purity and true love fueled by truth. That's the basis. He says it's not proper. This stuff, this darkness, that which is so common in the world, that which is everywhere you turn, it's always been that way, beloved. You can look at like pornographic graffiti that you can find around ancient Israel and ancient Egypt. There's nothing new under the sun. Now certainly there's a degree to which this sort of crude and disgusting behavior is now seeped into almost every avenue of our life because of the ubiquity of technology and all of those things. But the human heart hasn't changed, beloved. It's just as dark. And in the light of that, Paul says, you're not, you're not supposed to be like the world. You're not just another group of people. You are called out of the world. You're saints. That means you're holy. That means you're consecrated unto God. That means you're set apart for his purpose. And this he did for you in love, beloved. For his holiness, his life. So he says it's not proper. This sort of stuff is not proper. It's out of place. One scholar noted that Paul is trading on a certain honor and shame dynamic here. And it's hard for us because we live in a time where this is completely distorted, isn't it? I mean, any healthy, sober sense of what is honorable and what is shameful is being increasingly distorted. Like that which is shameful is being celebrated increasingly. That which is honorable is being despised increasingly. So it's hard. But we still have our moral bearings in the light of God's word. And he says, this sort of talk is shameful. So shameful is it that even a hint of this behavior has no place among you, beloved. So holy is our God and so committed is he to bearing true witness of his self in this world as he has called us unto holiness and blamelessness. 
But again, note that it's not just a bare negative. It's not, don't do that, don't say that. Your tongues were made for a purpose, beloved. What does he say? Thanksgiving. (laughs) He says, not this sort of speech, this crude, this foolish, this dirty, this filthy speech, which is common everywhere. He says, let your speech be seasoned with thanksgiving. Well, thanksgiving for what? Read the book of Ephesians. (laughs) Read the first half of Ephesians. By the time he's laying down these exhortations in five, you're convinced that you're the most blessed person on the face of the earth. You've been predestined before all things in love. You have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. God has purpose to magnify himself in the salvation of his church, joining heaven and earth in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. There's no shortage of reason to be thankful, beloved. You belong to God. You've been made recipients of his love. You've been rescued out of the darkness of this world. You've been spared the fate of this world, which is judgment and death. You've been placed in a household that is being built up in life. You are now one whose capacities are being redeemed, not to destroy, but to build up in true reflection of who this God is. Yeah, we've got reason to be thankful Beloved, may he give us the eyes to see the privilege that that is as we build one another up and point one another to our God whose purposes of purity are being brought to pass in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. (laughs) Truly, O Lord, you are good. We as your people have known this goodness, Lord. And so strengthen us as we reflect upon the portion of grace which is passed unto us. Help us to earnestly hear these calls, Lord, unto new life. As calls to be heeded in faith. As you call us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. As you call us to walk by the Spirit and gratify not the desires of the flesh. As you call us to put to death the deeds of the body that we may live. Father, give us the ears to hear and give us the eyes to see as you see. We ask in Christ's name, amen.